All right. Good morning, familia. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all again. And today, after two amazing weeks of Missions Fest, we're going back to the Gospel of Matthew. And in this section of the Gospel of Matthew, we have been looking into Matthew chapter 13, in which we find six parables. And if you were here before, I explained that a parable is a made-up story that Jesus created to talk about heavenly things. He explained it in an earthly way to explain heavenly things. And what Jesus does with these parables is he's going to give us a description of what the kingdom of God looks like. What Jesus came to establish when he came in which God is king over over. over over every area of our lives, every sphere of our lives. And in Matthew chapter 13, the first parable, if you guys were here three weeks ago, was the parable of the sower, in which in that parable, Jesus is the one planting his seed. The seed is the gospel, and the place where Jesus plants that seed is in the hearts of men and women. That the kingdom of God starts in the hearts of people. People that have heard the message, believed the message, repented, and respond to the message. What we're going to see today is another three parables that continue the description of the kingdom of God. And today, we're going to talk about four things. Kingdom expectations, kingdom growth, kingdom hope, and kingdom power. Expectations, growth, hope, and power. Let's go with the first point, kingdom expectations. With this first point, I'm going to try to answer one question. What is it that we, as Christians, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ already, what is it that we, as Christians, should expect as Jesus continue to establish his kingdom and this side of glory? What is it that you and I should expect if we are Christians and how the Lord will do things here and this creation as of right now. And as you know, expectations really matter. Because expectations tells you what you ought, not only what you ought to expect, but how you live and why you live the way you live. And I want to start by making an argument that in Christianity, there are two main expectations about the kingdom of God in which I don't think that any of those two are the proper definition of the kingdom of God according to these parables. See, I think that there's a lot of believers that have taken one of these positions, and I'm going to call this the triumphalistic view of the kingdom of God on one end, or the escapist view of the kingdom of God on another end. So I'm going to invite you for you to do like kind of a self-assessment to see if you land in one of these two. And by the power of the Spirit, I hope, I want to correct that thinking as much as I can. See, if you fall under the category of this triumphalistic view of the kingdom of God, you probably bought into the idea that if you are a good Christian, that if you live your good Christianity, that if you trust God with all your hearts, that if you penetrate all areas of the world and society, that if we put Christians in positions of power and influence, Eventually, good will overpower darkness. In this view, this group of people believe 
that the more better Christians we are, the more goodness will increase, the more evil will decrease. This is a group of people that have the tendency to have this hyper-optimistic view of the kingdom of God here on earth. And the effects of Christianity here on earth. To a certain degree, this is the group of people that believe that somehow we can create a Christian utopia in this creation. That we can experience all the blessings of God in this creation the way it is. See, this is a group of people that believe that there's a point in which beauty and this side of creation can completely overcome brokenness. And I would argue that if that's your case, your tendency is to be overzealous about things that you probably shouldn't be overzealous. That the tendency is for you to trust way too much what you could do and way too much what other Christians could do. That the tendency is to rest, that you put your trust in people, Christians in positions of power. Because if they make it there, this creation will be much better. You know what the problem is with that? I think that history tells you that even if you try hard and you do a lot and you put people in positions of power that are Christians, as much as you want and as much as you can, not everything changes. I mean, this is still a messed up world, you know? Even if you try, things don't change as much as we think they should. And then the problem that comes from that problem is that if that is you and you don't see things changing, then you become a skeptic or resentful or pessimist. So from hyper-optimism, out of a sudden you become hyper-pessimistic or pessimism. The good thing about this group, though, is that they know that things can change. And they hope that things can change. That is one view. How many of you guys are on that side? No, don't raise your hand. I'm just wondering. <laughs> the other side, the other view is what I would call the escapist view. In which these are people that could see all the darkness and the brokenness in the world. And the tendency is to run fast Hide as much as you can, create little Christian communities, or move to the south. <laughs> Too soon, right? For those of you that are watching from the south, nothing personal. <laughs> it's because they think that if we do this, then we can create our Christian utopia somewhere else. You know what the problem is with that? That your heart goes with you. And you're part of the problem. You know what the problem is with that? That wherever you go, you will find brokenness. Just a different kind of brokenness. It's an exchange of brokenness. You know what the problem is with that? Is with that? that you probably neglect the call that Jesus gave us to be light and salt in this broken creation. To seek the flourishing of our communities. To seek the peace of this creation. You know what the problem is with that? We become, a, we become pacifists. Oh, no, not pacifists. We exercise passivity. That's what I meant. It's almost like if the world is going to hell and you're like, that's not my problem. 
You know what the problem is with that? That we are motivated by fear. And to a certain degree, we believe that the Lord already gave up on this world. Or gave up on Illinois. That's personal. You know what the problem is with that? That you don't expect anything to change. See, the triumphant group expects everything to change. And the escapist group expects nothing to change. One elevates beauty over brokenness, and the other one elevates brokenness over beauty. And I think that Jesus wants us to have a different perspective, you know? A third option, a third view, which I think that that's what the parables are talking about. And this is the gist of it. This is the premise. This is the principle that as Christians, we always live at the intersection of beauty and brokenness at the same time. That as Christians, you could tweet that, okay? That as Christians, we always live at the intersection of beauty and brokenness at the same time. That as Christians, we are always in the midst, in the middle of beauty and brokenness at the same time. Therefore, our expectations cannot be hyper, hyper optimistic, nor it can be hyper, hyper pessimistic. That we don't have permission to become overzealous or at the same time become passive. Because we are always living at the intersection between beauty and brokenness. And that's precisely what Jesus is going to teach us in these parables. And this is precisely what I'm asking the Lord to do in us to understand this and to live according to this. So look, so look at how Jesus talks about this in this parable, starting with the first parable in verse uh, 24. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the weed, wheat, and he went away. Notice that there are two kinds of sowing going at the same time. The sowing of the good seed of wheat and the sowing of weeds. At the same time, look at verse 30. Both grow together. Can you say both grow together? You got to do it with a Latino accent, though. <laughs> Don't do it. I'll be offended. Just kidding. Just kidding. Both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvester, first collect the weeds and tie them in, bu in bundles to be burned. Then gather the weed and bring it into my barn. You know what the key phrase there? Uh, key phrase is there? That they go, to, go together. That while the Lord is doing, planting his seed and the seed is growing, at the same time, the evil one is doing something here in darkness. That at the same time, God is doing something and the devil is doing something. That this is growing and this is growing at the same time. Therefore, you cannot expect your heaven here, but you cannot expect only hell here. Now, from the rest of the text, Jesus is going to explain what that parable looks like and what it means. So, for example, in verse 37, he says, he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That is one of the names given to Jesus in the Gospels. This is one of the names given to Jesus as he is establishing the kingdom of God here, as he's bringing heaven to earth. 
Now, look at what it says in verse 38. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. It's the gospel working in kingdom people. The weeds are the people of the evil one. So there is people of the kingdom and people of the devil. There are people of the good seed and people of the weeds. Both of them working at the same time, side by side, coexisting side by side. So if you are in the triumphant camp, the hyper-optimistic camp, you're about to run into problems. Because as much as you want everything to change, you cannot forget that the devil is active. That you will continue to see broken things in this place. That it doesn't matter who is the next president. Brokenness is still in this place. That you could never find Christian utopia on this side of glory. That even though there is beauty, don't miss the brokenness. I think that that should affect your entire life and all your relationships and what you expect of life. See, it affects your friendship, you know? Because as much as you want and desire and have good friends, those friends are not as good, you know? Because it's a mix of beauty and brokenness. You know how I know that? Because you are that friend. You can expect for you to find your best friend, my BFF. Every single one of us is a mix of beauty and brokenness. Doesn't that affect the way you're parenting your kids? I mean, I'm sure that when you had your kids, you thought that your kids were going to be perfect. But guess what? We all know that our kids is a mix between beauty and brokenness. Look at that poor guy. He's suffering a lot. <laughs> Just kidding. Doesn't that change the way you view your marriage? I mean, when I got married with Heidi, they promised me that Heidi was going to be perfect. And it's even worse, they promised her that I was going to be perfect. And I got married and I said, surprise. <laughs> you know why we struggle in marriage? Either because you think that your spouse is only beauty. Or if you think that your spouse is only brokenness. How about if it's both? Don't you think that this is the reason why we struggle with work? This is super interesting. People tell you, experts tell you, that you got to find your dream job. And that the way to find your dream job, which, by the way, by the way that's a very modern thing. Nobody talked like that before. That if you find that to find your dream job, you got to find something in which your talents and your abilities and your desires and your personality Come together and you could put it to work. You know what's the irony of that? That job does not exist. The reason why we work is because of the glory of God, the mission of God, because we want to contribute to the goodness of this creation. I'm still looking for the perfect job. 
because every job is a combination of beauty and brokenness. How about you? Aren't you a combination of beauty and brokenness? See, you're not as good as you think you are. But you're not as bad as you were before. Because of the grace of God, you're still a combination of beauty and brokenness. That's why I think that the triumphalistic view of the kingdom of God does not work. And I also don't think that this escapist view of the kingdom of God works either. Because I don't have permission to be hyper-pessimistic. I don't have permission just to look at everything that is wrong with this world. Because the seed of God is still growing. Because God is still working because there's beauty in this creation. The solution is not the triumphalistic view. The solution is not the escapist view. The solution is to see these two things growing together at the same time. Now, Jesus not only gives us a description of the present, but he gives us a description of the future. Because he's going to show us that at the end of the day, even though this kingdom has these two realities at time, growing at the same time, the ending, though, looks completely different. Look at what it says in verse 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil, they will throw them into blazing furnace, to the blazing furnace. You know what that says? That there's one day in which Jesus is going to return, the second coming of Jesus. And then in that day is judgment day. Two things happen at the same time. Jesus comes back and everything that causes sins disappear. Everything that's sinful disappears. Everything that is evil disappears. And at the same time, evil people get judged. At the same time. Now, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you shouldn't be afraid of that. But you should desire that Jesus returns so everything that is evil disappears. Actually, your future, if you're struggling during this season, if you're struggling with suffering and struggle and relationship and friends and work and all these things, this picture right here should give you hope and move you forward. And I will, we will talk about that later on. But look at what you're going to look like. Listen up. Listen to how your friends are going to look like if they're Christians, if your spouse look, will look like if they're Christians, if your kids will look like if they're Christians, if how this creation will look like because of Christians in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. You know, I'm committed to my wife. Because I'm committed, so I get to see the glorified version of Heidi. I'm committed to my girls because I want to see the glorified version of my girls. I'm committed to this church because I'm hoping to see the glorified version of you. I care about this creation because I want to see the glorified version of this creation. That's your future. Even though right now we're struggling with this beauty and brokenness. That is our Christian utopia. You don't get that before glorification. You don't get that as, as long as uh, if Jesus has not returned. As of right now, we come to the realization and the reality that the good seed is growing and the evil one is working. Actually, one of the images that the text is going to use later on in the second parable is that the kingdom in the future will be like a tree. 
It's interesting because a tree in the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel is the full restoration of all creation. It's the symbolism of the full restoration of all creation. The full renewal of all things in which everything that is broken is healed. Everything that is emotionally hurt is repaired. And anything that is physically damaged is restored. This parable reminds us that we all, as long as we are on this side of glory, we're always going to live in the intersection of beauty and brokenness. Therefore, you've got to set your expectations right. How shall we live then? Point number two, kingdom growth. And here Jesus is going to show us that the kingdom grows and that the kingdom is unstoppable even though the world is evil. And he's going to show us through the mustard seed and the yeast parables. Look at what it says in verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Remember, this is Jesus planting the seed in the hearts of people in this side of creation. Though, uh, verse uh, 32, though it is the smallest of all the seeds, pay attention to the word small there, Yet when it grows, it is the largest of gardening plants and becomes a tree. I love the idea that this parable brings. In the midst of a culture in which everything that is mega and huge we love, Jesus says that the kingdom of God always starts small. See, the story of redemption starts with one naked man and one naked woman. No Gucci, no branding, naked. It starts with a small nation called the Israelites. It starts with, within the Israelites, with a king, the first king, from the smallest of all the Israelites, the Benjamites. It starts with a tiny little king, King David, that was the youngest of the brothers, and nobody thought that he could be a king. It starts with an unwanted wife like Leah. It starts with a baby in a manger, Jesus. It starts with Jesus being the son of an unknown carpenter, an unknown woman, Mary. It starts in a little tiny town called Bethlehem. It starts with 12 unknown men, fishermen, an unwanted and undervalued woman. The kingdom of God always starts little. Listen up. But it becomes powerful. And it becomes big. And it becomes the largest garden and it becomes a tree. That's the same idea that we see in the, in the third parable and the yeast. Look at what it says, verse uh, 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into this, uh, into this thing, and it became to cover the whole thing. It worked itself through the whole thing. This is the idea, and this is, this is part of the motivation that pushes us to continue to move forward. Because even though the, gospel of the, the seed of the gospel is small, and it starts is small, the kingdom, at the end of the day, because it is God working in and through his people, the kingdom is unstoppable, irresistible, persistent, relentless, and overpowering, even if the devil is at work. 
The gospel in the hearts of people is unstoppable, irresistible, persistent, relentless, and overpowering. It always grows. Did you know that in church history, the times in which the church grows the most is when they suffer the most? Read the book of Acts. Read about first century church. That's why when I hear Christians saying, oh my goodness, this is awful for me, it's like, awesome! Because the gospel becomes more powerful in the midst of suffering. The gospel grows more and it's more efficient because we have to trust him more. We have to rely on him more. We have to deny ourselves more. God always accomplishes his purposes. God will accomplish this, his purposes for this creation, for this community, for this church, and for you. One of my favorite verses, and I know I say that every week, but this is for real. Psalm 57, verse 3, it says that God will fulfill his purpose for me. God will fulfill his purposes for you and your kids and your family and your work and your community and your church. God wins. There will be a time and a place in which God wins. Yes, these are complicated times. Yes, we, we see the, the, the influence of secular mentality more and more in this world. Yes, we see wars all over the place. Yes, there's abortion and racism and injustice in all areas of society. Yes, there's depression and anxiety going through the roof. Yes, there's divorce and adultery and broken relationships and abandoned kids. Yes, there's sexual immorality and gender issues and hate and, and all of that stuff is going at the same time. And yet, the kingdom of God continues to grow and is unstoppable. And the Lord will win. So we don't run. And we don't hide. And we do get into the areas of society that we have to get in. Because the seed will grow. If that is true, then that requires of all of us four things. And every single one of us is going to come under the letter P. It requires, P number one, that we learn how to be patient. You know why? Because the seed grows slowly. My wife loves gardening, and I do not have the patience for that. She plants the seed in the fall, or not, in the spring, and I see the beautiful flowers in December. <laughs> when the snow is already here. That's how seeds work. Little by little, through seasons and times, but it continues to grow. If that is true, then you have to learn how to be patient with yourself. Because even though you are not a complete product just yet, and you still see a ton of brokenness in yourself, the Lord will continue to work, you know? 
You might not see it, but I guarantee you that if you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are a much better person than when you were 20 years ago. I don't know if you guys remember this uh, illustration uh, C.S. Lewis uh, created. He says that Jesus is like a carpenter that you invite to, his, to your house. And you invite Jesus to fix your kitchen. And when you turn around, Jesus not only fixed your kitchen, but he moved into your living room and into your dining room and into your pantry, and he starts to fix things around. I know that every single one of us invited Jesus, maybe every single one of us invited Jesus to fix an area of your life. But Jesus is not asking for permission. He's messing around with your entire life. And he will complete the task. but not until you get to glory. So you fight against your sin, but you have to be patient. So you fight against your tendencies, but you have to be patient. Because he hasn't finished with you. You also have to be patient with others. Once again, you got to be patient with your kids, man. You have to be patient with your spouse. You have to be patient with your friends. You have to be patient with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You have to be patient with people. Why? Because the seed grows slowly. Listen, I am convinced that the Lord made me a father, so I grow in patience. And so I remember that I don't have the power to change people. That kills me. So I have to trust the Lord with my girls. I have to trust the Lord with you. And we also have to learn how to be patient during difficult circumstances. See, the question through the difficult circumstances is not why, God, why this again? The questions, I think, that should supposed to be more like, how should I respond to this during this season? What do you want me to learn? How do you want me to change? What areas I need to grow into? That's the first P, patience. Second P, presence. If creation is going to be restored, completely restored and renewed, and if we are kingdom people and God works through his people, then your presence in this creation really matters. You being present with your kids matter. You being present with your friends matter. You being present with your spouse matters. You being present at work matters. You being present with your community matters. You being present, faithfully present matters. That's how the Lord establishes his kingdom in this creation. Through you, faithful presence Third and fourth P is perseverance and perspective. The only way we learn how to navigate this dual thing that is happening, beauty and brokenness, is when we have the right perspective and we are willing to persevere. And this leads me to point number three, kingdom hope. I don't know if you noticed this, but the, the way these parables are organized are beautiful because it always tells you something at the beginning and then it creates the image at the end. It's always a beginning and an end. It tells you how everything starts and how everything finishes. So, for example, in verse 24, it talks about this good seed, right? 
But then you go all the way to the end of that parable in, in, in verse 43, and it says that the righteous will shine like the sun. Beginning and end. Look at what he does with the other parable. Verse uh, 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It tells you that it starts as small. But all the way at the end of that, it says it, is the, it becomes the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree. Beginning and end. He does the same thing with the third parable in verse 33. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took. And at the end, he tells you that he took over the whole thing. This image of beginning and ending is extremely important because if you can see what the ending looks like, not only that changes your perspective about the present, but it invites you to persevere. And I'm going to use two illustrations to make that clear. How does that image of the future, this kingdom hope, influence your present? So let me use this illustration. It's from a movie that came out in 1999. I was like two years old. <laughs> that was quick. It's the movie, the, uh, the movie The Sixth Sense. How many of you guys watched that movie? Shame on you. You shouldn't raise your hand. It's a movie that by Bruce Willis, in which Bruce Willis is a psychologist. And he's trying to help this kid that apparently has psychological problems because he sees dead people. That's what he says through the movie, I see dead people. This psychologist is trying to help him as much as he can, but for some reason he just can't. To make the story short, like if you didn't watch the movie, I'm going to ruin it for you because he came out in 1999. At the end of the movie, you see that part of the reason why Bruce Willis cannot help this kid is because Bruce Willis, the psychologist, is dead. So the whole movie is to prove that the kid is actually seeing dead people because he's having a conversation with a dead person. And this is what they do, though. Right at the end, they go back and show you all the, the different scenes in which the kid is talking to someone that in Bruce Willis' head is talking to him, but nobody else could see him. It's an amazing way to, amazing twist of the movie, right? Now watch this. I usually watch movies more than once. So I went back and I watched the movie again. And it wasn't as fun anymore. You know why? Because I knew everything that was going to happen. But at the same time, I enjoyed the movie more. You know why? Because I knew what was going to happen. I was not worried. I was not asking questions. I did not care if the kids saw dead people or not because I knew how the story ended. Transfer that to our future. Your suffering is temporary. And your joy here is also temporary. The good things you have here are temporary. And your pains here are temporary. The best is always at the end. It's not what you have here. Don't live your life like if this is all you got. And don't suffer like if this is all you got. The best is always better than the present. And that gives you a completely different perspective on how to live with good things and how to live with bad things. But that picture also changes 
not just your perspective, but he invites you to persevere. And I'm going to use another illustration, and this one I'm borrowing from Tim Keller. He talks about these two people that are working in a factory, doing the same job, and the job is painful, and the job is long. The difference, though, between these two people is that at the end of the day, one person is going to make $100, and the other person is going to make a million dollars for the same job. So at break, they come together, and they start talking about job, the job. And the one that is making 100 bucks is saying, man, this job is terrible. I hate it all the way, all this for nothing, 100 bucks. And the other person that is making a million says, I don't mind it at all. Actually, I could go longer. I don't mind working as hard, sweating as hard, weeping as hard. I don't mind going through this. What is the difference? The million dollars. See, our hope is that we have something better than a million dollars at the end of the day. And the reason why we persevere is because that is much more worth it than when I go here. You know what makes heaven beautiful? It's not just that you're not going to suffer anymore. What makes heaven beautiful is that God is there. No interruptions, no sin, no struggle, just him. Question. How then we become people of the kingdom? Point number four, kingdom power. This sermon is like one of those movies that the movie is getting better and better and better and better. And right before the ending of the movie, it says... To be continued. If you want to know where the power comes from for us to be kingdom people or become kingdom people, you have to come back next week. <laughs> because the last parable is the one that is going to explain how is it that we get transformed so we become just that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are like the workers at the factory. In which at times living in this life feels so complicated. And yes, we have beautiful moments and times because the city is growing. But other times it's so difficult and painful because the kingdom of God is also growing. And I pray, Lord, that you give us, by the power of your spirit, that you give us what we need, not just to survive, but to live according to your design. I pray, Lord, that you give us the patience we need I pray, Lord, that you help us become people that is present, faithfully present. I pray, Lord, that you make of people that, uh, that persevere. 
But I pray, Lord, that you give us a bigger perspective of life. That we can see, Lord, what is yet to come. And be moved by that. And impacted by that. Would you, God, do that to us and in us? We so want to live different and contribute to what you're doing in this creation. So please, Lord, do something wonderful in our hearts. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus, and we all say,